Our scripture this morning is Romans 1, verses 18 through 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resemble mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. One author wrote that nothing keeps people away from Christ more than their inability to see their need of Him. If I open up the hood of a car and look under, uh, I can't find needs. (laughs) I don't know how to diagnose problems, and I certainly wouldn't know how to help them if I could find them. (laughs) Other than maybe changing the washer fluid, I'm pretty useless. And because of that, not a lot can get fixed. If you don't, if you open up the car hood and you're just looking at it and you don't know how to diagnose any problems, you don't see any needs, then 
And then if you don't know how to fix it, then, then nothing actually gets fixed. I need someone, if I'm going to open up the hood, and I'll probably be calling one of you, I need someone to look under the hood with me to show me not only what's wrong, but then I'll like, okay, thanks for diagnosing that. Now I'm going to need you to fix that for me. <laughs> Paul writes of God's wrath revealed from heaven against unrighteousness, and he puts before all readers their great need so that that obstacle, obstacle that keeps people away from Christ would be removed. And no matter the, the background or the history that, you, that any reader brings to this passage, Paul is going to implicate them by his words. Paul lifts up the hood, as it were, and he looks under that hood with his readers in this passage, that all of them may know their need for righteousness because of their obvious unrighteousness and God's wrath that is pointed against that obvious unrighteousness. This passage is an expression. Paul has not left his longings and desires to be with them, to proclaim the gospel to them that he has already told them about in the introduction. He has not left that behind, and, and now I'm going to get down to the hard stuff. This is an expression, a further extension of his longing for them, of his care for them, that they might see the depths of the problem, so they might see the depths of the solution and glory in the Christ that he writes about and the gospel is about. It's kind of him to show them need. Now, verse 18 immediately provides the stark contrast with the content that he's given just before that. Because in verse 17, we, we see that this righteousness of God is revealed. The right standing with God is revealed. In verse 18, he says, the wrath of God is revealed. Paul began in verse 1 with the gospel. He's saying, this is the gospel of God I'm going to write about. It's about the Son of God. Verse 3. He says in verse 16 that the gospel is the power of God because of verse 17 it reveals the righteousness of God. There's lots of of God so far. And Paul adds to the list here with wrath. In verse 18 he says that the wrath of God has been revealed. So we don't misplace what this wrath is or where it's coming from. It's the wrath of God. It's his undeniable, right and necessary, revulsive reaction to evil and wickedness in all its forms. One commentator describes it this way, that the wrath of God is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. And this wrath of God is consistent with God's character that we see throughout the scripture. It's not antithetical to what we know about God and his character that has been displayed for us is in every page from the scripture. We here have studied both Hebrews and Deuteronomy, and there's a phrase that is shared in both, that God is a consuming fire. So we could go close to the beginning of the scripture and close to the end of the scripture, and you have the same phrase, God is a consuming fire. He's a holy God, and he burns against impurities. God's wrath is also consistent with his more known and more celebrated love and goodness. You can't love goodness without hating evil. You, you cannot disregard uh, right standards and be unjust and still be loving. To disregard right standards, right practice, right living, to disregard justice is to be unloving. It, the number one cause of death, I read this week on roads still, number one cause of death is drunk driving. I couldn't be for safe roadways and for drunk driving, right? There's, there's 
uh, group, mad. Mothers against drunk drive. There, there's a reason they're mad. There's a reason that exists. You couldn't be for your children driving safely on the road and before drunk driving. Wrath is this necessary part of the of God list because you couldn't be loving and good and just and not hate evil, not have wrath towards evil. And it's this wrath that's revealed from heaven in verse 18. And what's it revealed against? It's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God's wrath is never fitful. It's not capricious. It's not out of control. He's not throwing fits. He's not having a tantrum. He's not rampaging. His wrath is always aimed at something, and it's aimed at evil. It's aimed at what he describes here as the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That is, he's saying it's aimed at everybody. That, that men there is, is an inclusive word. That's all people who do what? By their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Suppress it, stifle it, silence it, do violence to it, like squeeze out its witness. What, what Paul means by the ungodliness and unrighteousness that he talks about here in verse 18, he's going to explain in verses 21 through 23. What he means about these people who suppress the truth, he's going to give us in verse 19 through 20. What are you talking about, Paul, when you're talking about suppressing the truth? Well, he says, verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So the, the truth of verse 18 that's being suppressed is, verse 19, it's the knowledge of God, verse 19. It's the knowledge of God. And it's that knowledge of God that Paul is saying is being suppressed by all. It's not just that truth and knowledge of God can be known. Truth and knowledge of God is known and suppressed. Not just that it can be known, it is known and it's suppressed. That God has shown his invisible attributes. Well, what are those? Further defined as his eternal power and his divine nature. He has shown those things and those things are known and suppressed. Not unknown, they're known and suppressed. And we think, well, how has God shown his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature? Well, he tells them he's shown it in creation. This is also the, the witness of Scripture. In Psalm chapter 8, verse 1 says, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And you've set your glory above the heavens. You look at the heavens, you see the glory of God. Or Psalm 19, verse 1 says the heavens, they're declaring something. They're declaring the glory of God. They're, they're saying something. The sky above is proclaiming his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and the words to the end of the world. Like creation is proclaiming something, testifying, witnessing about something, and it's doing it throughout all of creation, all of it is testifying, and everyone can hear this voice. Or in Acts chapter 14, Paul is speaking at Lystra, and he speaks of the witness of God. In verse 17, he says, he, God, did not leave himself without witness. Well, how did he witness? How did he leave a witness? For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Like he points to creation. This is the witness that God has left behind. Or in Acts chapter 17, 
verse 24, Paul, you might remember, he's on the Areopagus, he's, he's talking, and here's what he says, the God who made the world. This is the first thing he appeals to. That unknown God that you don't know, I'm going to name him for you. And here's what he says first, that the God who made the world and everything in it. That's where he starts. He starts with creation. It's testifying something. So scripture testifies that God has made himself known in creation, in nature, in the things that have been made. In other words, he has not left the world without witness. If we never hear the audible voice of God or read the scripture, God has not left himself without witness on this earth. I love how one theologian has said that, that there is not an atom of the universe in which God's everlasting power and deity are not clearly seen. There are sparks of his glory in every corner of creation. You could follow the path of a bee. You could cut open a fruit. You could look at a sunrise or a sunset, hear the ocean lap on the shore, listen to crickets and birds and animals. You could look at all sorts of things in creation and all of them are bearing witness to the invisible attributes of God, namely his eternal power, his divine nature. They're plain. And, and what's further is what's clear from Paul here is that he's saying that humanity people, all men are designed to identify it so that it is plain to them, he says. It is known by them, he says. They, they are hardwired to know and hear this witness that God has written into creation. It is kind of, in a sense, written on our consciousness. So when we look at nature, nature isn't like a, a data to make sure if we carefully analyze, then it's going to lead us to this idea of God. No, we look at nature and we know there's a God. That's what Paul's saying here. One commentator said this, I thought it was helpful. God has stitched his greatness into the fabric of the human mind so that his majesty is instinctively recognized when one views the created world. You, you don't have to come up with the right kind of evidence and then get there. You look at it and it's there. It's stitched into your mind as an image bearer of the one true living God. At some level then, everybody knows something of God. Now that knowledge of God is not perfect. It's not exhaustive. Right? Bees might show you something. Uh, sunrises, sunsets, rainbows, storms, animals. All those things might show you something of God. But man, man there might be times when you, you take in a hurricane, you're thinking like you might know the power, eternal power of God, the, some of the invisible attributes, but you may know nothing of his mercy and love in those times. So the knowledge that we get of God through nature, it, it never brings salvation. But notice the result it does bring. There's a negative result. Verse 20. It leaves all without excuse. Paul doesn't say, you know what? We need what you Romans need because God has not left himself without a witness and even nature is testifying. You know what we all need? Why don't we all just take a walk? Let's go climb those hills that you guys talk about in Rome all the time. Let's smell some of the roses and then everything's going to be fine. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say that nature and creation is the power of God for salvation. Creation, instead, he says, leaves all without excuse, not without need of salvation. Nature then, and creation, its witness isn't enough. It may share, and I don't think probably does. How do you get to the love of God, the mercy of God in the things that have been made? But what it does do is it puts those in Rome and those in Galatia and those in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Tibetan villages and in suburbia and in Enid and all places under heaven. It leaves all of those people without excuse. And so maybe you're thinking, 
What about a person on a remote island who's heard nothing of the Lord, nothing of the gospel? What about that person? Well, Paul is clear here that that person is not ignorant of the knowledge of God, not ignorant of truth, and not innocent. And so it's often proposed, like, what about that innocent person on a remote island who's never heard the gospel? Would God condemn them? And the reality is that that person doesn't exist and never has existed. That what Paul says here is clear. Everyone is without excuse because we know the knowledge of God. The, the, the invisible character, nature of God is plain. So none is without knowledge. All know something of God. None is innocent. It's the fool who says in his heart there is no God, not an isolated, ignorant person on an island. That person in their unrighteousness is suppressing the truth. And what that suppression of the truth is, Paul describes more in verse 21. He, he gives us, in a sense, a, an anatomy of unbelief, an anatomy of suppressing the truth. In verse 21, he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Although they knew. Again, that's, that's limited knowledge, but it, you know something of God. They know. And what do they know? They know there's a God. It's been hardwired into them, and they can see it and hear the witness of creation. They knew God. It's stitched into their minds. It's plain, but it's rejected. It's known and perceived, but suppressed. And here's how it starts. It starts with not honoring God or giving thanks to God when they know God. They know there's a God. And they're not honoring God or giving thanks to God. Although they knew, they didn't honor God. In other words, he's saying that they're not glorifying God, although they knew. In Acts chapter 17, Paul again, he's on the Areopagus, and he says of this God, in him we live and we move and we have our being. But that didn't lead to those people on that, in that place honoring God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, he says, What do we have that we didn't receive? But that didn't lead to the Corinthians, all the Corinthians giving thanks to God. We, we read that God creates all things, and in him all things hold together, but all people aren't glorifying God. Instead of honoring God, instead of thanking God, instead of glorifying God, those who suppress the truth, they don't give glory to God, they don't give thanks to God. That's where it starts, and it devolves from there. Verse 21, he, he continues, they didn't honor God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The knowledge of God that's hardwired into each person that is evident in creation, that knowledge of God that is meant to lead to them glorifying God is suppressed. And they're not honoring God with it. They're suppressing it. And to suppress it is to stifle it, to, to silence it, to kind of, in a sense, twist it to our own ends. We're twisting away the knowledge of God from its original purpose. Its original purpose was that we might glorify God. We're twisting it away from that and serving a different purpose. Now, one said he described it as suppression of the truth, as violence to the truth, holding it hostage. Almost like a, a hijacking of the truth. Taking it and steering it where we want it to go rather than letting it do what it was supposed to do. So we think of the Israelites. As soon as they're out from Egypt, they have this episode at Sinai with, where they, they say, hey, you know, we don't know where Moses is. We kind of don't know what's going on. Let's, Aaron, make us a God. 
And so they have this golden calf made. What, what's going on there? They have the knowledge of God, right? They had heard about God. They'd seen his great power. They'd seen his work. They'd seen his majesty. They'd just been rescued from Egypt. They had knowledge of God. But what they do? They suppressed it. They twisted it. They used it to serve their purposes, to make them feel right in their way, not God's. And notice that as they're doing this, as they're rejecting God, suppressing the truth, there's still this impulse to worship because they're made that way, that's stitched into them. They knew that they should worship, but their hearts were darkened. And they hijack the truth and they steer it in the direction they want it to go. God's glory, the golden calf, is exchanged. They exchange the glory of God for lesser things, not from ignorance of God, but from suppression of the truth. And this isn't the story of Israel only. This is the universal story of man, Paul is saying. This is the universal story of man throughout history. There is why there is not one place in history, you cannot find one culture where there's not religion present. It's testifying because all know and all suppress. And, and you look from verses 18 through 23, there, there's no limits on any of these things, right? All of creation is witnessing to who? To all men, and it's plain to all the men, and it's clearly perceived by all men, and all of them, all of those who are hearing these things, that it's plain to, that are perceiving these things, are those who suppress it, suppress that truth in their unrighteousness, and exchange the glory of God for created things. And we'd like to think that this passage and these things are about ancient pagans or Israelites and the golden calf in the wilderness, but this is the universal story of unbelief. This is our story of unbelief. All hearts know God and do not honor God or give thanks to God as they should, and then they devolve into further idolatry. For us, it may not be creeping things or a golden calf, but we will twist the truth hijack it to serve our purposes all over. I'm not sure I wasn't at a temple where people worship yesterday watching football. We hijack it. We twist it to where we want it to go. And we worship. One author said that in terms of truth, we are always self-right. See, notice the hijacking. It will always make us in the right. We are always self-right. In terms of goodness, we're always self-righteous. And in terms of God, we are always our own gods. We use the, the stitched-in reality of our humanness, the stitched-in knowledge that we have, stitched-in truth to right ourselves in some way so that we come out in the black and in the clear in our own minds. So it might be a rejection of God and an enthroning of self or another idol. Or maybe we don't just wholesale reject this God of the scripture, but we don't like certain parts of it, and that surely couldn't be true because we have scientific advancement now, and we're way past that, so surely those things couldn't be true, things like the wrath of God. Let's just remove that, and then what we do is that we have created a God in our own image. That, too, is an idol. Sometimes making a God to our taste is, is idolatry of another form. And Paul's argument is really clear. God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men that all are without excuse the human impulse to worship gives us a way as those who are not ignorant of the truth but suppressing the truth 
Our failure to give glory to God shows our failure to respond rightly to what we know of God. And so we don't just fall into sin and just find ourselves where we're like, oh, how did I get under God's wrath? We, we know how we got here. We rejected God. We suppressed the truth. We stand under God's wrath because we have gone our own way. And Paul's conclusion here from 18 through 23 is that the wrath of God against all the unrighteousness and ungodliness of man is just wrath. And that all men stand under that God's response of wrath against our ungodliness and unrighteousness is completely just. Now, when we think about wrath, we think of lightning bolts and thundering heavens and God zapping people with burning fire. And sometimes in Scripture that happens. But it's explained differently here. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the Creator, or the creature, rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. God gives him up. It's a repeated phrase he's going to give here in the rest of this chapter. He, he gives him up. He hands him over. And those, those words don't sound terrifying. They don't sound wrathful. But notice what happens as we read through this. In the Old Testament, when God gave over, and he does give over his own people, Israel, he hands them over to their enemies. It's not a good picture. And here he's handing over those who have suppressed the truth to the own, their lusts of their own hearts, to impurities, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. He's handing them over. He's handing over unbelievers to their own settled choices. He's giving people, all men, over to the ever-increasing cycle of sin. In other words, what God is doing in verse 24 and 25 is he's, he's handing people over to the thing they most want to do. To the lust of their heart. This is no passive role from God, although it seems like that handing over seems passive. In unseen, merciful ways, God has been holding back people from their own terrible ways. He, he holds some of that back, and the giving over is just a releasing of that. So I, I think of the good shepherd. He, he wants the sheep to, to eat from green pastures and drink from still waters, right? That's how he's leading He's steering the sheep to green pastures and still waters. That's what they were made for. That's what he does. He's the good shepherd. He knows how to do that really well. But these sheep want to go their own way. And as he's trying to steer them to green pastures and still waters, they keep running towards the rapids that will sweep them away in an instant and to the briars and the poisonous bushes that they think look so good all the time. And the giving over to the lusts of their hearts is a consequence of verse 25, exchanging the truth about God for a lie. Notice in verse 25 that the fundamental sin is the same as what he talked about in the previous verses. It's not glorifying God, right? You're exchanging the truth of God for a lie. So in other words, you're not giving honor to God and giving thanks to God as you were designed and made to do. You've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And there's sexual sin that he points to directly as a consequence of this exchange and of them being handed over. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up 
to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. I think what Paul is doing is he's taking verse 34 and he's getting very specific with it in these verses about the impurity of, that he spoke of towards verse 24. Here he's talking about it in verses 26 through 27. That the nature of the dishonoring of their bodies is spelled out. Specifically, Paul speaks of the dishonorable passion of homosexuality, which is another, again, notice the logic and the flow of the argument, another exchange. Verse 23, idolatry is an exchange, a twisting of God's intended design and serving the, the creature rather than creator. It's against nature, against the design that God had made them for. And so, too, homosexual relations. Perhaps that's even why he singles them out here is because there's a, a parallel with idolatry of, of verses 21 through 23 with what he's going to say about homosexuality in verses 26 through 27. Is that there's this argument there against nature. Paul is clear that homosexuality, even passion or lust for it, is contrary to nature, contrary to God's design. He is pointing to created order using unusual words to make sure we know that. So the words for male and female, man and woman here, are different words than what would be usual. And they're words that are drawing from the creation account that's given to us in Genesis. And the creation account is an account that emphasizes with humanity the sameness of humanity. Adam says, man, I have had nothing like me all through this naming process, then all of a sudden here comes one that's like me. But in the creation account, alongside this, this clear word of sameness in humanity, equal essence, equal glory, is the distinction of humanity, male and female. So in chapter 1 of Genesis, just briefly and necessarily we read this and it says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And this design matters because he's going to say to them, verse 28, he blessed them and he's going to say, be fruitful and multiply, which only works if they live according to their design as both male and and female. The design is clear in the words of creation. The design is clear in the bodies of creation. The design for human sexuality is clear from the beginning as well, that this was intended to be this relationship between male and female that was to then procreate and to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The design for human sexuality is listed in the creation account. The design is one man, one woman, covenant relationship. The man is going to leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That is male and female. So Paul is drawing out this creation account here, I think even with the intentionality of his words in verse 26 and 27, and he's saying man and woman, they are doing what is contrary to nature. This is why he even says that they have been given up, they've given up natural relations because of the design, because of the nature. They can look around and it's testifying something to them. So one author says this, that the words for natural and against nature do not describe our subjective experience of what feels natural to us, but instead refer to the fixed way of things in creation. 
The nature that Paul says homosexual behavior contradicts is God's purpose for us, revealed in creation and reiterated throughout the scripture. And I love the last part of that because it is both of those things. It is revealed in Genesis and and reiterated throughout scripture. So it's not as if Paul is just, this is a blip on the radar that no one has ever talked about before or thought through. Like it is revealed in creation, spoken of throughout scripture, and is consistent throughout. And this design from God was exchanged, is what Paul says in verse 26 to 27. It's exchanged. And he says that men are committing shameless acts with men, and then they're receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And I, I think within context, that seems to just fit with God had giving them over. He, he has let them wander into these directions, should they choose. He's held back. He's been merciful. And now he pulls that back and gives them over. And the root of all of this is the same as idolatry. They have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They have failed to give glory to God, the, the essence and the root of sin. They have failed to honor God and give thanks to God as God. And while sexual immorality pervades humanity that has rejected God, so too other sins. In verse 28, Paul says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Where, where do you get oughts? You get oughts because you know. You know, we could do more just on that word itself. But Paul continues to forge the connection of sin and God's response. Their sin and God gave them up. God responds to their sin by giving them up. And the root of sin is again, right? Like They didn't see fit to acknowledge God. There's the root. They're, they're not honoring God. They're not giving thanks to God as they should. And so Paul is hammering home that the root of idolatry, the root of sexual immorality, the root of this vice list that he's getting ready to get is that they're not honoring God. They're not glorifying God. They're not thanking God. There's the root. And as God gives them over, allowing sin to run wild and unrestrained, its ugliness and horror is evident. Listen to these words. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though they knew God's righteous decree, they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They do not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. As Paul lays out this list in verses 28 through 32, I don't think his intention is to sharply distinguish between the terms. I think he wants to saturate readers with the reality of the comprehensiveness of human sin. That this list exists, says so much about the nature of humanity in a fallen world, and it says so much about this fallen world that we're in. And this list, is, it makes sense, doesn't it? It's not foreign or distant. I think Paul knew that for his original readers as well. They would have known this list as well. The scope of human sin is broader than expected and deeper than probably anyone would want to believe. It's not just the unrighteousness that he speaks of here, but they're filled with all manner of unrighteousness. You're not just envious, you're, you're full of envy. That's what he's saying here, and he continues that. Like, notice the language. It's way more pervasive, way down deeper than what many would probably even recognize or say. 
Paul's not saying then that as he looks at humanity, that all are as bad as they could be. But he is saying that, that evil and wickedness is comprehensive, that it has touched every area. And he's speaking of people, it has touched every area of their lives. There's not a part of us that's untainted by sin. And if we think we are or have those places, then read some of the words again. Not just unrighteousness, full of unrighteousness. Not just envious, we're filled with envy. It's more pervasive than what we think. And the general description he gives here is broad. They're filled with and full of. And then he moves from general to a little bit more specific sins. But most of the list is uh, what we'd call kind of sins on the horizontal plane. Right, so they seem to be sins that are with one another, not directly a sin. To, of course, every sin is first a sin against the Lord. But these sins that he points out seem to be sins that are primarily ones that are enacted against one another. Sin, then, we need to know, is social. It never stays to itself. It always likes to affect other people. There's, there's no thought in, in the Scripture that one could like, well, I'm kind of doing my own thing, and it's not hurting anybody else, and it's not bothering and it's not affecting anybody else, so what difference does it make? There's no thought of that. If you're going to live in sin, like it is social, it won't stay to itself, it does affect and hit others in some capacity. But also notice as he does this list, there's no gradation of sin. He doesn't say, you know what I talked about earlier? That sin, that's the worst sin. And down here, this is a lesser sin. He doesn't do that. He's not doing that here. He's not playing into the, the uh, specific cultures that would say like, hey, we really don't like this. And that has changed over time, what cultures like and don't like, doesn't it? What they would grade as worser, worse or uh, greater or lesser sins. Cultures shift on those things all the time. He, he doesn't do that here. That's not the point of his argument. There's no gradation of sin as one worse than another like specific cultures would like to do. The, the Bible gives the picture of, of greed destroying as much as sexual immorality. Or, or gossip burning force down as much as sexual immorality will destroy. Or, or you, did you catch this one? Disobedient to parents? And we think like, okay... You're just, are you trying to just get everybody in there? Like, no, it, uh, a lack of honor, wasn't that the heart of our, our sin against God? A lack of honoring God. And he says, disobedience to parents, there was a command about that, honoring your parents, honoring kind of the authority structures that God has intended, and disobedience to parents. When you look through the scriptures, like think of Elijah and his sons, it was uh, atrocious, the results of these things. And so as we look at the list, like, this list is a list of sins that, that destroy and there's not like, oh, that one is the one. No, it's like all of these. Greed will, will eat people alive, and it is. Envy eats people alive. Gossip is burning things down. Disobedience to parents is, is moving people in a terrible direction. And perhaps I think as we look at a list like this, that the most dangerous ones are the ones that are most overlooked. The ones that we want to highlight and bring out, those are important too, but what about the ones we're overlooking? Because Paul lists them all. And we need to let them all read us. And so verse 28 through 32, what he does is he takes whatever distance any reader had from being implicated in this text, and he dissolves it. So if you thought that we, were like, we could put some distance between this text and us, what he does in verses 28 through 32 is he says, yeah, that doesn't exist. There's no distance between this text and your life. You, you might have been able to hide from some parts of this. You, you might have been able to point fingers of, oh man, that's them. I know. I know what they do. 
but you can't anymore. You ever been greedy? You ever had envy? You ever gossiped? You ever disobeyed your parents? And the root of all those sins that's listed is the same. And so that means the heart of all man is the, the same, right? The same root. Not giving glory to God. Not honoring Him and giving thanks to Him as is His due. Not acknowledging God in every area of our lives at all times opens the door to a life full of sin. And the reality is, is that our sin is far worse than we think. It affects more than we think. And God is against it more than we think. This is why the conclusion that Paul gives to chapter 1 is so important. He ends chapter 1 in a similar way as Nathan ends with his confrontation of David. David had been with Bathsheba. Nathan comes to confront him and he tells him this story and he concludes with these words, You are the man. That's what Paul does in chapter 1 as he concludes. What it does is it puts the, the Jew and the Gentile, and the man on the island, and the man in Enid, under the just wrath of God. And this wrath is not as distant as we'd like to hope. Paul says, verse 18, it's revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. And so as we read it, let's be careful to know and see the logic of the arguments. Logic of verses 18 through 32 to get to this conclusion that all men are under the just wrath of God. But as we're careful to do that, let's also be careful to not detach verses 18 through 32 from the rest of chapter 1. Yes, God reveals, verse 18, his wrath against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But do you remember what else he's revealed in chapter 1? God revealed, chapter 1, verse 17, his righteousness, right? The the men of verse 18, and in men there, read yourself. Read everybody. That's us. Read everyone. The men of verse 18 can fit into the everyone of verse 16. The the everyone that the gospel is powerful. It's power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. The the men of verse 18, are those are the only ones that qualify for the salvation of verse 16 that is available for everyone. And this gospel can save because it reveals not just wrath of God, but righteousness of God standing between the wrath of God and our unrighteousness is this one we know as Jesus. He's the perfect one who wasn't under the just wrath of God because he lived this perfect life. He lived a righteous life. And he offers up his life, his righteousness, to his Father as a sacrifice for those who are unrighteous that they might be counted righteous. That's the righteousness that's revealed, that by faith we can have right standing with God through our faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing keeps people away from Christ more than their inability to see their need of Him or their unwillingness to admit it. And so as we see these, these things revealed from God, here's what we need to see. We need to see our need. In one sense, all we need is need. And Paul goes to great lengths to show man's unrighteousness, to show his readers their need, which is a tremendous grace for us. 
The need is for righteousness because all of us in our unrighteousness are under the wrath of God. And God reveals that righteousness, how sinful man can have right standing with him by their faith in Christ. The response then for unbelievers is to start with the need. If you don't know God, you need to recognize that you're under the just wrath of God. We would say to you that while you're there, you need to admit your need and seek the righteousness that God also reveals, a righteousness that's from God, that's by faith. If you're a believer, let's not fail in this moment to acknowledge God, to give honor to God, to give thanks to God, that we know anything that we know is by Him. In Him are all things, and in Him all things hold together. In Him we live, move, and have our being. What do we have that we didn't receive from Him? Let's not fail in this moment to acknowledge Him, to honor Him, to give thanks to Him rightly as God. But because He also revealed righteousness for us, let's not fail to exercise that faith. One of the ways that we do this together is we pray together, we give thanks to God together, We take the Lord's Supper together where we're remembering that the only thing that stood between me and the wrath of God was the cross of Christ, and that if that wasn't there, then I'm undone. And we move forward in faith, taking the bread, taking the cup, and are astounded that Christ would provide salvation for us. Part of our response is to exercise our faith in that meal. So as we come to the end, let's let's recognize our need, and let's look to the one who has fulfilled that need or the one who can Let's pray together. Holy and righteous God, who is wrathful toward our sin. Some of us need to flee from danger from you because of our sin today. I pray you would grant that, Lord, that you would grant repentance and faith. And that anyone here today who has never acknowledged their sin and their need before you would turn away and run from your wrath and experience instead your love and your peace and the joy that comes from knowing you and walking with you. And God, some of us need to rejoice and be thankful today for the danger that will not land on us because it already landed on your son. We are these things. We see this list and we see our own sin. And all of us who belong to you have been forgiven and sanctified and you're working your holiness into us deeper and deeper and we're becoming more and more in your image. But we still, we look at this list and we see ourselves.
we practice sexual immorality. We have hatred in our hearts for other people. We're gossips. We delight in speaking ill of those who aren't around. We're disobedient. We're disrespectful. We're selfish. We're arrogant. And because we are all of these things, you've come down to the earth to walk in a way that contradicts all of these things, to walk in perfection and holiness and to obey the law, to fulfill it, and then to die in our place, Jesus. And we take bread today and we drink juice to remember that we belong to you and we've been adopted into your family because you are good, not because we are. Thank you. Jesus, for not turning away from us, but running to us and taking our sin and putting it on yourself. We want to make noise. We want to rejoice. We want to praise you, make much of your name because you are so good. And we want to tell other people too. I pray that this glorious truth would be in our mouths this week and that we would show people love like you've shown us. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. Amen.